Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Good morning. Good morning, Jesus 911. Virgin Most Powerful Radio Two Man Car. Jesse and Ruben uh, are coming to you uh, live, and uh, we're going to be talking to you about some good subjects, uh, one of which is uh, really relevant. Uh, we are in a full crisis of faith. Good morning, Jesse. Ruben, I'm 10-8, reporting for duty, sir, and let's get started. Hey, just want to remind the audience, uh, remember October, month of the rosary, fire off your prayers every single day. Remember, the month of October is dedicated to the Most Holy Rosary, and so many miracles and battles and natural disasters have been averted when God's people take to the daily rosary. Amen. Yes. Hey, Jesse. Uh, yeah. You know, let's get into this. This is, uh, this is a subject that, uh, you know, faithful Catholics uh, have been talking about amongst themselves on, on various podcasts and talk shows. And, and so this is... Uh, Nick Monsignor, yeah, yeah, let ahead. me just mention something. This article was written in 2017, so this has been going on for a while. It says five years old, but it's 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 relevant. It's like if it, it's like if he was talking about. It's like if you wrote it last week, because it's so, it's what's yeah. going on is is uh, is yeah. it's it's ongoing. It's ongoing, correct? Yeah. So let's go J- jump right into it, Ruben. Okay, yeah, Monsignor Bucks. He's a, he he's a very well known and respected theologian. And uh, a liturgical expert, and he says, uh, the theologian and former consultant to the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith calls on the Pope to make a declaration of faith, warning that unless the Pope safeguards doctrine, he cannot impose discipline. Hmm. To resolve the current crisis in the Church over papal teaching and authority, the Pope must make a declaration of faith, affirming what is Catholic and correcting his own ambiguous and erroneous words and actions. That that have been interpreted in a non-Catholic manner. That's a and key this, phrase, Ruben. That's a key phrase. This pontificate is known for ambiguity. The Holy Father says something. We say, "What? What does right. that mean?" And so that 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 that's the word that really defines the last ten years of this papacy. Go ahead. Yeah, because that Jesse, they uh, as you notice, various bishops from different countries are doing their own thing with it. They're you know. Uh, they're interpreting it the way they want to interpret it, you know, whether it be in Belgium or Germany or uh, Buenos Aires, you know, Argentina, yeah, yeah, South America, right? Yep. So it, go, it goes on to say, um, well, this is according to uh, Monsignor Nicola Bucks, a respected theologian and former consultant to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF, during Benedict's 16th pontificate. In the in the in the following interview with Regis. With the register, Monsignor Bucks explains that the church is in a full crisis of faith mm-hmm. and that the st- storms of division the church is currently experiencing are due to apostasy, the abandonment of Catholic thought. Let me just define apostasy for those that were saying, what does that mean? It's a Greek word that means the rejection or the abandonment of the faith. That's what apostasy means. And St. Paul talked about this uh, 2,000 years ago to the Thessalonians. I, I believe that what we're seeing right now in the church is exactly what St. Paul prophesied to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. I believe we are living right now 
through the great apostasy. That's my opinion. The article says, Monsignor Bucks's comments come after news that the four dubia cardinals seeking papal clarification of his exhortation, Amoris Letizia, wrote to the Pope April 25th asking him for an audience, but have yet to receive a reply. Again, you had four cardinals that were asking him, hey, there seems to be uh, uh, some some sections of Amoris Letizia that the Pope wrote, a pastoral document, that were not consistent with 2,000 years of Catholic teaching. The Pope didn't give him an audience, Ruben. Never, no. He never, but, he, but he gives Katy Perry an audience. He gives, uh, you know, actors, uh, Matt Damon. Yeah. Uh, he gives, uh, you know, George Soros' people of an, uh, an audience. Oh, yeah. Bob Dylan sang for him. I mean, Bono. Uh, here's, we can go on and on. I mean, Jesse, and it's, <laughs> these bishops, these cardinals have been waiting. The two of them have already passed away. And I think it's Mueller and uh, Burke are the last two that uh, are still, uh, you know, holding, you know, waiting in line. Well, I'll tell you one thing: those cardinals, they went to their eternal reward because when they stood before Jesus Christ, they made an effort to confront the Holy Father and do to correct Him, and He didn't accept them. Before Jesus, I'm going to tell you, they stand vindicated. They tried to do what they could, uh, you know short of pushing the Vatican doors open and forcing them what their, their selves in. And so uh, good for them. Uh, I think their judgment went very well, but it's not going to be good for, for Pope Francis uh, if he doesn't once again return to the, the deposit of faith and do what the first Pope said for all of us, for all, every Pope to do, to, to um, strengthen the brethren. Strengthen the, the, strengthen the brethren in what? In the Catholic faith, in the apostolic faith. That's his job. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, just pick it up where we left off. Yeah, it says... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Monsignor Bucks's comments. Yeah, Monsignor Bucks's comments come after news that the four dubia cardinals seeking papal clarification to his exhortation. Amoris Letizia wrote to the Pope April 25th asking him for an audience, but have yet to receive a reply. The cardinals expressed concern over the grave situation of Episcopal conferences and the individual bishops offering widely differing interpretations of the document. Some of which they say break with the church's teaching. They are particularly concerned about the deep confusion this has caused, especially for priests. For many Catholics, it is incredible that the Pope is asking bishops to dialogue with those who think differently, that is, non-Catholic Christians, but does not want first to face the cardinals who are his chief advisors. My senior books ad, uh, advises us or reminds us about. He says, if the Pope does not safeguard doctrine, my senior book says, he cannot impose discipline. Then my senior books is asking another question, Ruben. My senior books, what are the implications of the doctrine, doctrinal anarchy that people see happening for the church, the souls of the faithful and priests? And he answers that the first implication of doctrinal anarchy for the church is division caused by apostasy, which Jesse already uh, um, told you what it means, which is the abandonment of Catholic thought as defined by St. Vincent of Lorenz, quote, semper, quote, ubique, quote, ab omnibus creditur, which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all, is what that means. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who calls Jesus Christ the master of, uni of unity and pointed out to heretics that everyone professes the same things, but not everyone means the same thing. 
This is the role of the magisterium founded on the truth of Christ to bring back, to bring everyone back to Catholic unity. Uh, Jesse, that, that, that idea of, uh, that it not doesn't mean every, the same thing to everything to everyone. That that was the, pretty much the definition uh, of the of Vatican II. They 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 worded things very ambiguously. It was misleading, and so conservatives could say, like Archbishop Lefebvre says, I signed he signed off on it because he was interpreting it the way that the church has always interpreted it. And then there's others who had. You know, like Edward Skillebex had said that we, you know, one of the Pariti there was saying that, you know, we wrote it in this manner so that we can interpret it later on the way we wanted to. And that's, so, exactly, yeah. that's exactly what they've done. There's re- really four documents. I think I went through them. Uh, yeah. Cause the cause um, heartburn to traditional Catholics. There's four documents. I'll grab my Vatican II documents and I'll, I'll give you the number, which ones they are. But go ahead, Ruben. Yeah, so St. Paul exhorted Christians to be in agreement and to speak with unanimity. What would he say today when cardinals are silent or accuse their confreres, uh, when bishops who had thought, spoken, and written, scripta manet, uh, written words remain in a Catholic way, but then say the opposite for whatever reason, when priests contest the liturgical tradition of the church, then apostasy is established, the detachment from Catholic thought. Paul VI had foreseen that this non-Catholic thought within Catholicism will tomorrow become the strongest force, but it will never represent the church's thinking. A small flock must remain no matter how small it is. That last sentence says a lot right there, Ruben, what Paul VI said, and then he's describing what we're living through right now, that last sentence, where he says... This non-Catholic thought within Catholicism that's happening right now with the Senate of Synodality, that's happening with a lot of bishops' conferences around the country, okay? So it's non-Catholic thought within Catholicism. Paul VI says, will tomorrow become the strongest force? Well, when he said that in the 77, this is happening right now. This is the force that we're dealing with right now. Non-Catholic thought within within the church. Then he says, but it will never represent the church's thinking a small flock must remain, no matter how small it is. Well, I could tell you, um, Virgin Most Powerful is one of those small flocks that uh, w- obviously uh, we're going to resist whatever does not represent the 2,000-year-old teaching of the Catholic th- Church and many other people. But again, even Paul VI says it will be a small flock or what the Bible calls a remnant. Yeah, Jesse, that came from uh, a book called The Pope Speaks, and he was inter- interviewed with the Pope. Paul was interviewed by uh, Jean Quiton, and uh, so you could you could see more about that. But it, it reminds me when it, when it said that the, it's going to become smaller. You know, you remember when uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth said the Church will become small. Yeah, we'll have to start afresh, more or less, from the beginning. Yeah. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. As the number of her adherents diminishes, she will lose many of her social privileges. And wasn't that true, Jesse, during the Arian crisis? Um, I think even Athanasius said that you you possess the, the, the buildings, you know, the churches, but, but we, we possess, we the, possess faith. the faith. Yep. Amen. Jesus 911, two-man car, Jess Romero, Ruben Nava. We'll be right back. Continue talking about um, the senator synodality in light of this article. Now, back to Jesus 911. 
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Jesus 911, two-man car, and we're 10-8 for Jesus. And we are talking about uh, an article that was uh, what well, was interviewed by uh, Monsignor Bucks, a theologian, and uh, he was also a contributor to Pope uh, Benedict XVI's <clears throat> the CDF. And, um, and he's, he's very, he's a liturgical expert as well. And he's been asked questions about what's going on in the church, the doctrinal anarchy and, 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 uh, and it's, it's very interesting. And, and he's very, we're, we've, we've talked about him before, Jesse. He's, he's in well regard, this guy, uh, yeah, Monsignor Bucks. Yeah, he's a heavyweight. He's a heavyweight amongst uh, theologians. He's not. Yeah, he's not some lightweight. So the they ask him a question: What implications then does doctrinal anarchy have for souls of the faithful and ecclesiastics? Monsignor Bucks says the apostle exhorts us to be faithful to, to be faithful to sure, sound, and pure doctrine that founded on Jesus Christ and not on worldly opinions. In Titus one seven, uh, eleven. Titus two one to eight. Perseverance in teaching and obedience to doctrine leads souls to eternal salvation. The church cannot change the faith and at the same time ask believers to remain faithful to it. She is instead intimately obliged to be oriented towards the word of God and towards tradition. Therefore, the church remembers the Lord's judgment. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not, who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. John nine thirty nine. Wow. It properly applies to a lot of the clergy today. Do not forget that when one is applauded by the world, it means one belongs to it. In fact, the world loves its own and hates what does not belong to it. John fifteen nineteen. May the Catholic Church, Monsignor Buck says, always remember that she is made up of those, only those who have converted to Christ under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All humans are uh, human beings are ordained to her, but they are not part of her until they are converted. Then he's asked another question, Ruben. What is it? How can this problem be uh, or best be resolved? And he says the the point is, what idea does the Pope have of the Petrine ministry, as described in Lumen Gentium 18 and codified in Canon Law? Faced with confusion and apostasy, the Pope should make the distinction, as Benedict the Benedict XVI did, between what he thinks and says as a private learned person and what he must say as the Pope of the Catholic Church. To be clear. The Pope can express his ideas as a private, learned, learned person on disputable matters, which are not defined by the church, but he cannot make heretical claims even privately. Otherwise, it would be equally heretical and uh, not to mention scandalous. Um, I believe that the Pope knows that every believer who knows the regula fide, the rule of faith, or dogma, which provides everyone with the criterion to know what the, the faith of the church is, what everyone has to believe and who ha- who one has to listen to, can see if he is speaking and operating in a Catholic way or has gone against the church's census fide, the sense of the faith. Even one believer can hold him to account. So whoever thinks that presenting doubts, dubia, to the Pope is not a sign of obedience hasn't understood 50 years after Vatican II, the relationship between him, that's the Pope, and the whole church. Obedience to the Pope depends solely on the fact that he is bound by Catholic doctrine to the faith that he must continually profess before the church. Must we be, are, says, yeah. 
Yeah, Monsignor Book says, we're in a full crisis of faith. Therefore, in order to stop the divisions in progress, <clears throat> the Pope, like Paul VI in 1967, faced with the erroneous theories that were circulating shortly after the conclusion of the Council, should make a declaration or profession of faith, affirming what is Catholic and correcting those ambiguous and erroneous words and acts, his own and those of bishops that are interpreted in a non-Catholic manner. Otherwise, it would be grotesque that while seeking unity with non-Catholic Christians or even understanding with non-Christians, apostasy and division is being fostered within the Catholic Church. For many Catholics, it is incredible that the Pope is asking bishops to dialogue with those who think differently, but does not want first to face the cardinals who are his chief advisors. If the Pope does not safeguard doctrine, he cannot impose discipline. As John Paul II said, the Pope must always be converted to be able to strengthen his brothers according to the words of Christ to Peter. He says, quote, when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. Well, Ruben, I'll tell you some of the things that that I've seen as, you know, the Bible says that you'll know somebody by their fruits in Matthew uh, 7, 16. You'll know them by their fruits. Uh, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. All right, well, let's take our Lord Jesus Christ at, at his word. What's happened in the last 10 years under Pope Francis? Now, this is objective. I'm just being like a, I'm, I'm sharing like a police report. I'm not getting personal here, just like a police report, okay? <clears throat> in the last 10 years, Seminary attendance has declined more under Pope Francis uh, than any other pope since Vatican II. So there are less people, less people going to mass, less people going into seminaries to study priest, and also more Catholic churches are closing at a higher rate than any uh, than under than under than uh, yeah than after any other pope in history. Here's something else that we see. Something that wasn't talked about before Pope Francis and the other popes, even since, since, the, since the end of the council. Homosexuality and women's ordination about somehow justifying or, or making it licit in the Catholic faith. This seems to be the topic of discussion within the last 10, 10 years in his papacy. Also something else that we see under Pope Francis, and again, I'm just being flat, factual here. I'm not, not being subjective. Um... A few years ago, the Vatican had to draft a a, a a document how to decommission churches because this is happening so fast under Pope Francis that we're selling off churches and losing churches that there was a document that had to be used to, to how to decommission the churches because many of these once beautiful churches have turned into have turned into gyms, homes, restaurants, and bars. Yeah. Here's something else. Let me mention one more thing. I'll toss it over to you, Ruben. I think something symbolic of this papacy happened a few years ago uh, when the Pachamama idol was brought into St. Peter's and uh, and there was many even priests that got on their prostrate, on their face, and were worshiping this, uh, this Amazon earth goddess. Pope Francis was there. He witnessed this. Uh, and so... That that opens the. It's like let me give you an example. It's like if Ruben at his house, you know, when his kids were home, my kids were home and they're smaller. Let's say uh, uh, I knew my kids were in the room with their cousins playing the Ouija board. I said, ah, no problem. They're having fun. Well, I'm the father of the house, 
If I'm allowing them to play the Ouija board and I know they're doing it, guess what? I'm allowing deep because they're conjuring up. They're invoking demons. So I'm allowing as the father, those demons to come into my house because I didn't stop the actions. I didn't stop my kids from playing the Ouija board. It's the same with Pope Francis. You had shamans and witches and sorcerers that were conjuring up demons through this Pachamama idolatry. You had Catholic priests worshiping the demons as they were prostrate on their face. And Pope Francis was just standing there watching as the father of the church. They were calling in demons, not only into the Vatican, but into the entire world, but specifically in the Vatican. Pope Francis, as the father, should have said, get out right now, leave. And he should have pulled, you know, he should have done like our Lord Jesus Christ, turned over the tables of the money changers and ran them out as they started worshiping their false god. But that didn't happen. So the fact that we have so few people going to church right now compared to the Catholics that went to church before the council, before ni- before 1965, 75% of Catholics went to Mass on Sunday in the U.S. Right right, mm-hmm. right now, about 11 to 12% of Catholics are going to Mass on Sunday. So let's just be honest here. If a big company goes bankrupt, you blame the CEO. Well, yep. Our church is spiritually bankrupt right now, Ruben, so it's logical to blame the CEO and his board of directors. And what happens? Well, they should be fired. That's what happens right. to CEOs in the corporate world. Yeah, that's what happens to coaches, too, when the team doesn't make the, you know, the playoffs. <laughs> yep. 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 So, yeah, Jesse, uh, you know, when I was reading this, it, it came. Th- these two books came to mind that I've read in the past. Uh, we Resist You to the Face. Um and it was a, it was a it was mainly that's written. The, that's the Bible verse, by the way. That's in Galatians chapter two. Correct. Yeah, Saint Paul. Uh, he, what he says is, what Peter was doing was saying one thing and doing another. You know, and um, yeah. this is written by Tilly Sinke Gumares, Michael Matt, John Venari, and Marion uh, Therese Horvat, a PhD. And and what was going on there with John Paul II was in this book um, on modernism. We see it also continuing with Pope Francis because what's on look what he's now. It's on steroids look, now. Oh yeah, look what he's doing to the traditional movement, to the to the the faithful. And here, there's a, a quote in here from the, the, they're talking about uh, John Paul II, and he says, "You seem to regard with suspicion and turn your back on those who represent the Catholic tradition." Now, just picture them this being said to Francis. For example, while apologizing to the world. For the sins of Catholics throughout history, you seem to have forgotten about offering an apology to the concerned faithful of the church who have experienced unprecedented confusion and discouragement as a result of the conciliar revolution. Unfortunately, it is not only silence that greets the voice of traditionalists. There is also a process of trying to extinguish their voice. Uh, So, this, in the face of these two realities, the incessant ad- advance of the conciliar revolution and the intent to extinguish the counter-revolutionary action, some laymen who remain faithful to the perennial teaching of the Catholic Church see themselves forced as a question of conscience to take a stand. And I, so I consider myself one of those laymen, and you and you know, you and Terry and, and others yeah. like us, there's still people in the fight that want to protect Holy Mother Church. And... Uh, the other book that was that it reminded me of was Ovadis Petre, 
well, where are you going? Quo vadis Petri. Where are you going, Peter? And it was having to do with ecumenism. And it was written, you know, published by Tradition and Action. It's uh, same authors, Atilisinki Guamaras. And uh, it was translated by Marion Horvath. So again, we we're, we want to, we got to push back. And sometimes um, it's, it's easier when, when lay people do it because there's no penalties. They can't, they yeah. can't come down down on us. But if a, a prelate does it, as you see by like Father Altman or some of the others who have been silenced um, and their, their faculties removed, it, it's becomes problematic. And uh, it's, you know, we're losing good priests as a result of this. That's right. And yeah. Ruben, this, this whole agenda they're trying to change the church through the synod of synodality. The synod, the synod is the great reset in the Catholic Church. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's, uh, it's a total fraud. And these, uh, these church synods are being used to politicize the Catholic Church. Jesus, uh, 911, we'll be right back. We're going to look at Mexico, our neighbors south of the border. They're becoming a socialist and Marxist dictatorship. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Uh, moving uh, to a different topic now, we're talking about Mexico uh, becoming a socialist dictatorship and, uh, and, and millions and millions fleeing to the United States. Um, Jesse, this article was was written in 2018, and um, we couldn't even. Ima- uh, yeah, I don't think anything's changed. <laughs> you know. Yeah, we I mean? could we couldn't imagine how uh, how many Accurate. millions of Arab refugees are coming here. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead, Jesse. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, it's, there are seven disturbing facts about Mexico, and this is this article was written about five years ago. It goes to show you nothing's changed. Mexico's becoming a socialist dictatorship. And this is why, by the way, millions and millions are fleeing into the U.S. Every American should be very disturbed. The U.S. could see millions of refugees storming across its southern border. Why? To escape the socialist dictatorship evolving in Mexico. Me and Ruben are going to give you seven facts. <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll leave Frog here. We're going to show you seven shocking and disturbing facts that you should know about the recent presidential election in Mexico. We're going to prove to you that uh, Mexico is evolving into a social dictatorship. So here's fact number one. The new president of Mexico, he's a committed socialist. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador was elected president of Mexico in a landslide victory. He's going to be president for at least six years. He wants to transform Mexico into a socialist country. By the way, when he was also inaugurated and uh, in front of the entire country and all the television cameras were on him, he had a witch, a shaman, uh, walk around and, and start doing incantations with incense, with incense and with a sage and with, uh, what's that other word that they use, uh, a sage and... Uh, basically wafting the air with with a feather and and invoking demons around this president. This was done in front of the entire world. We saw 
This this president of Mexico was consecrated to Satan the day he received the office of president. Go ahead, Ruben. Yeah, and and this guy, he's been, uh, you know, he's been described as center left, uh, progressive, populist, and economic nationalist. He's uh, he's been a national politician for over three decades, and he's promoted public investment in sectors that have been liberalized liberalized under previous administrations, and he's implemented a number of progressive social reforms. So yeah, he's trending towards that, uh, being a socialist, Jesse, and uh, that's what you just mentioned about the, the shaman, and, and that's pretty disturbing. The fact number two is the media got it all wrong. The media was optimistic. They loved Obrador's uh, rhetoric about uh, bullet point number one, fighting back against President Trump. Bullet point number two, reforming the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Number three, the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. And they love the man who called for solving poverty and crime by socializing the economy. Obrador declared that poor Mexicans should, quote, leave their towns and find a life in the United States, end quote. And uh, it's funny, he mentions his fighting back against President Trump. Well, you know, Trump, (laughs) he, he was... He talks about and he, and he when with this president he says that uh, yeah we we had them put their national guard along the border as a wall to keep the the immigrants from coming into our country and uh, they didn't want to do it but Trump says well then you know there's going to be tariffs on on imports <laughs> and okay how can we serve you President Trump <laughs> and and it, he got it done you know and. Um, I, and, you know, Trump used to, to say that when he was campaigning that uh, we're going to build a wall and Mexico's paying for it. Well, I don't know if that actually happened, but uh, I think that's what he know, meant. I think that's yeah. what he meant. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And in kind of a roundabout way, they'd be paying for it. Right. And Obrador yeah. said that those people are coming to the United States. He said it's their human right. Wait, wait a minute. How can he say it's their human right? I mean, sir, yeah, they have the human right to want to leave, but. But whether they are allowed in the country is a whole different ballgame because it's not his country to give them, you know, to open the door for them. Yep. Paragraph 20, paragraph 2241 of the catechism says that every country has the juridical authority to establish their own border laws. So, uh, yeah, this guy's not a practicing Catholic without a doubt because he doesn't know Catholic teaching. Every uh, church teaching goes all the way back to St. Thomas Aquinas, probably even before that. Uh, the church teaches that every country has the right to establish laws to protect their borders. A uh, couple of the points you want to make about that, Ruben? Yeah, well, you know, he in his victory speech in, in July of that year, he says, we're not planning to create a dictatorship, neither open nor disguised. Mm. But still, the, you know, the three, he's a, was a three-time presidential candidate. He's historically mobilized his, his large poor and working class support base or disruptive public demonstrations, kind of like you see here with our liberals here in, in this country, most notably following Mexico's 2006 election when thousands of supporters camped out in the capital city, declared defeated Lopez Obrador, the rightful president, and sought to create a shadow government. So he's already, he's trending towards that that type of uh, behavior. Well, you don't get your way, you're going you're gonna to pout. And he's been he's been compared to uh, Jesse as a 
as uh, the Vermont, you know, as like Bernie Sanders, you know, the white haired mm. socialist that we have here. Mm. He's like a left wing leader sometimes compared to, to Bernie Sanders. Oh, got it. OK, that makes sense. Okay. Fact yeah. number but, three. Obrador made socialistic campaign promises. The new president has promised to accomplish several socialistic goals. Number one, raise the minimum wage. Number two, grant free college tuition for all. Third bullet, reverse efforts to privatize the oil industry and other industries. Fourth bullet, stop the reforms that were moving Mexico away from state-controlled collectivism and towards more free market-oriented policies. Obrador also wants high-energy subsidies, higher pensions, guaranteed jobs for young people, and other socialist policies. He also wants friendly relations with Venezuela and Cuba, uh, two uh, communist countries. Uh, Cuba's dictator, Fidel Castro, destroyed the, the country economically, murdered hundreds of thousands, and robbed Cubans of hope. But Obrador said that the Cuban dictator was, quote, a true social fighter who gave Cuba new independence. Yeah, this guy's tracking in the same direction. What the heck? Uh, Fact number four, the future of Mexico looks bleak. Here's what you can expect to happen to Mexico during the six-year term of President Obrador. Number one, expect the economy to crumble in the next three to four years. Number two, expect Mexico to develop ties with communist Cuba and socialist Venezuela. Expect President Obrador to try to become a dictator. Expect him to end freedom of the press. Expect him to stop political opposition. And expect him to stifle religious freedom. Um, I don't know that uh, that has happened yet, but uh, he's... He, he can't be if he's if he's having witches at his uh, swearing in <laughs> ceremony, Jesse, he can't be he can't be friendly with the Catholic Church down there. Uh, and, and I've never I haven't heard him uh, or I haven't seen him with with any members of our church or, or speaking of them uh, in the few times that I have, uh, you know, seen him on the news. That's true. You're right. Fact number five, the U.S. and Mexico are headed for a collision course. All of this will be very bad for the Mexican people. This will also be very bad for America. Expect U.S.-Mexico trade to decrease. Mm. Yeah, I, and going back to the, the previous point, Jesse, in his first year in office, he had he had a record-breaking 35,558 people who were killed in his first year in office. And, and you know, violent crime continues unabated you know, and in uh, in 2020, it was it was still going up. So he's uh, the one thing that you you're the main job you have is to keep as a president. In it, 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 it's the same thing here is the safety of your of your country of your your constituents of the people that you're 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 guarding and yeah and and he hasn't done that. So uh, mm. point number six. Expect Mexico to become the new Venezuela. Wow. Venezuela is a socialist mess. The Central Bank of Venezuela hasn't published inflation figures since December 2015, when it was 111.8%. Estimates of the current inflation rate in Venezuela range all the way from 2,349%, the International Monetary Fund, uh, to 27,364% at the end of May this year. That was in 17 Forbes. That's from Forbes magazine. So no matter how you look at it, Venezuela has suffered a total economic collapse after being one of the wealthiest countries in South America. Jesse, they have some of the most, the, 
the greatest supply of oil in, you know, in South America. And uh, they should be, they should be living like, uh, like Kings over there, but it's, it's only, it's only the wealthy. It's only the politicians that are, are doing so the vast number of, of, you know, the, the middle-class, the, the regular people are just impoverished. It's, it's Ruben, a shame. It should be like the Dubai of, of South America. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the, right. The Dubai of South America yeah. and we, with, with all the resources that they have. Yeah. Point number seven. Fact number seven. Millions of people will flee into the U.S. as Mexico becomes the next Venezuela. And this has been happening since this article has been been written. It's, it's this uh, this this is prophetic by the guy that wrote it, a guy named Craig Huey, who is a conservative from California. He says, expect millions and millions of Mexicans to flee to the U.S. to escape increased violence, oppression, economic collapse, and chaos. Mexico will be the next social disaster. Are we ready? And the, and the answer is, no, we're not ready. You know why? Because the Democrats have us busy uh, overseas, across the pond, uh, involved in wars that we have no business being involved in. Getting, getting us involved in endless wars, defending other people's borders as, uh, as our borders right now are being overrun uh, by illegal immigrants. That's right, Jesse. And, uh, I, I, you know, going to okay. heartbreak. Jesus 911, two man car, Jess Romero, Ruben Ama. We'll continue talking about <clears throat> socialism in Mexico, also socialism in, in America, the way it's, it's a failed. Uh, philosophy and, and political system. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526 2151. Jesus 911, we are back to Mancar and uh, Jesse and Ruben. We're talking about Mexico's president and uh, and that he is a socialist and uh, what kind of things we should expect to happen in Mexico, our south, our southern border neighbor. So, um, Jess, there's another article that I pulled up that was done uh, in 2018. And, and that, you know, it's it says that he, there he's saying that the truth is Mexico's new president will be neither socialist nor savior. That's that was what that are this article is is saying, but regardless, uh, this guy he calls himself a his nickname is A M L O uh, for his name Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and um, or PJ is one of another nicknames, but he came out of like a different he came out of a party the Morena party and it it was new and anti-establishment in nature, and. Uh, Kind of reminds me of the, the the what do we call our our leftists uh, the woke uh, the the uh, the five people those uh, A A O L L A C and they come the the squad squad yeah, the squad yeah yeah so his popularity is his, this guy's popularity has grown uh, despite abandoning his own party affiliation three times en route to the presidency and. Um, and such irreverence is as frightening to Mexico's elite as it is exciting to the disenfranchised to thrust him to power. So they, they don't know what to expect, but they, they're, they're looking for a savior. And 
this guy doesn't look like he's going to be it. Uh, obviously, there's only one savior. Amen. But uh, anyway, um, he was the one that was going to look up to, they were looking to him to stand up to, to President Trump. And um, he hasn't done that. He hasn't uh, he hasn't um, um, brought in the the cartels to, you know, bring them to justice. Right. Which is, yeah. The, the, so the cartels, they're, uh, they're so powerful down there that, you know, um, they they they're running they a run lot the of the economy. Yeah. yeah, they run a lot. They Ruben, the, the cartels corporately run the country along with the government. It's a joint venture. It's a, Mexico is a it's a drugocracy. It's a combination of the cartels and the government, and they work together. And uh, they 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 cover each other's you know they watch each other's backs, and they don't cross you know they, they work together to advance both. Uh, you know, both their bank accounts. It's all about money. Uh, and some of the disastrous things about socialism is you'll hear, they'll say things like, well, you know, we want, we want to make sure that everybody has a level playing field. We want to make sure that there's, that there's equity. You'll hear that word a lot. But yeah. the left today, here's the problem is that they they've misappropriated the word equity. They use equity to make it mean equality of outcome. That's something to be achieved through affirmative action and economic distribution. But real equity, in the old sense, it, it can't be given. Real equity requires the old-fashioned virtues like dedication and desire and hard work. So. You know, real equity, according to traditional conservative thought, it's bound or it's tied up. It's it's inextricably bound by taking full ownership of your life and by an act of your will and not making excuses. Don't say, oh, I'm Mexican. I'm supposed to be poor all my life and live in the projects. Oh, I'm black. You know, I'm going to be oppressed all my life. Knock it off. Quit having that victim mentality. That's exactly what the left wants. Uh, and a, a basic definition of socialism, if people are saying, okay, give me a simple, simple definition of socialism. In one sentence, socialism means government ownership of all means of production. That's a simple one sentence definition. Socialism, government ownership of all means of production. And uh, by the way, Ruben, the church has condemned, popes have condemned socialism communism, and even a, a word that some people started trying to bring up, Christian socialism. The popes have even denounced Christian socialism as well. Because one of the things that socialism advances is atheism. And there is no God. Another thing that socialism advances is uh, <clears throat> the denial of the right to private property. You see, for example, Klaus Schwab says... Uh, and by 2030, nobody will have anything and everybody will be happy. That's classic socialism <laughs> slash communism. Uh, the right of pi- private property is a Catholic social uh, social principle. Uh, and another thing about socialism, you'll see that uh, another huge flaw with socialism is they are anti-religion. They're, they're always trying to hamper religion. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, because socialism doesn't believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Socialism 
believes in the message of salvation through the earth, through human means, through government, through climate change, through global warming, uh, you know, through government intervention. That's the Messiah for socialist. Right. Yeah, just, uh, you know, uh, Pius the, the, the 11th Quadragesimo Anno, he, you know, in it, they talk that uh, they say that uh, a, Catholic, a good Catholic, uh, no one could be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2425, says the church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in, in modern, times, modern times with communism or socialism. And then there was Pope Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, which he explicitly rejects several main tenets of socialism. And also the Catechism says in 2401 that socialism severely curtails rights to private property. The church, on the other hand, upholds the individual's right to private property. So they can't, you know, they're not, they're mutually exclusive, those two thoughts. So we can't, uh, we can't be socialists as Catholics or, or communists. That's right. And I'll tell you why it's totally incompatible with the Catholic Church's doctrine. It's because Catholicism is built on, on two pillars, uh, or, or should I say Christian civilization. One of the pillars of Christian civilization is freedom, freedom how? Through private property, a man's house is his castle. And the second Christian pillar, of, uh, the, the, the second Christian pillar of civilization given to us by the Catholic Church is family, the exaltation of family life. Well, guess what? This is why socialism is incompatible with Catholic teaching, because socialism, first of all, it got a, a faulty view of man, obviously, the conception of man and the universe is, is, uh, is, is faulty. But beyond that, socialism attacks the two institutions, which are the pillars of the Christian civilization. That's private property and the family. Hmm. Uh, there was a a guy by the name of Michael Harrington who left. Uh, you, you've we've all I don't know if we've all heard of Dorothy Day, but you know yeah, I, yeah. I think she was Dorothy Day was a Catholic worker and uh, Catholic worker movement in the fifties, and he he described it as as far left as you could go within the church, and soon he left the church too to become an atheist and. Uh, he he wrote a book called The Other America and the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. He believed capitalism was dying out and that it was necessary to rescue the teachings of Karl Marx from authoritarian communists who had perverted them. So socialists are just like one step below uh, a full-blown communist. I mean, they're right uh, along the same lines, Jesse. Would you agree? Absolutely, because they even yeah. use the same... Just to show you that they have the same philosophical system, look at uh, USSR. That means Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say it doesn't say uh, Union of Soviet Communist Republic. It says USSR. In other words, socialism is a synonym for communism. It's just like saying car and automobile. Also, Nazi. When you look at the word Nazi, uh, the, the the word Nazi also uh, national something or other socialist uh the word socialist is in the word nazi it's, it's not z actually it's actually an s so nazism and socialism are two godless forms of uh of governing people 
which uh, which which once again they're 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 mutually exclusive with Christianity because they attack private property, they attack family, they're atheistic forms of government, and both of these two forms of government, socialism and communism, which is basically saying the same thing, uh, the state becomes God and the state replaces God. Correct, and and uh, that's what I, I mean. Our our government wants the Democrats; they want to have uh, everybody depending on the government. So the government would would uh, be, you know, they're they're as it is, they're involved in you know the medical uh, and insurance and and uh, and everything else. They get their hands in everything. So we can't. We have to be able to work like like Saint Paul says. You know, if you don't work, you don't eat, and yeah. People are waiting for handouts, and it's you. You you look around and you see so many people on the streets because they have that mentality. Oh, uh, someone's going to provide for me, and uh, I don't. I, I just it drives me to to no end that, that these guys. They've uh, it's it's the government's fault. They should be getting them back on their feet. I even can go back to Bill Clinton. At least he had enough sense to cut the amount of money he was giving to. Uh, welfare recipients and get them back on their feet, you know, so they can't rely on it for the rest of their life. It's uh, get them back to work, create jobs for these people. But what, but what ends up happening is that the government wants them in the street so that we can rely on the government. And that's, that's not, that's right. Yep. More, more, more social chaos. Ruben, I remember for for many years when, when I used to read the wander, when I had a little bit more time, on the front page, they always had it was it was a newspaper. They always quoted Pope Pius XI, and it always said on the front page, on the top, "No one can be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist." That was I, I think they still have it on their paper right now. I think they haven't. That's on the very front page of the Wander newspaper. It's been around for I don't know how many decades, but they always quote Pope Pius XI: "No one can be at the same at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist." And Pope Benedict explains why. Pope Benedict XVI in 2005, he says, We do not need a state which regulates and controls everything. That's the description of socialism. That's a wrap, mm. Ruben. We're done. Jesus, not even one. Yeah. All we're, right. We're 10 7. We're uh, up next. Gary Machuda, hands on apologetics. Coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. Stick around and uh, check out what he has to say. But as for us, we are E-O-W, end of watch. We're out. But we're always on duty for the Lord Jesus Christ and the Blessed Amen. Virgin Mary. Always 10-8 for them. God bless you. Keep the faith. God bless you.